Hello and welcome to the third podcast for English 264 Online. Once again, this is Jonathan Glantz. In this episode, I'll be talking about the rights of man and the French Revolution controversy. So this is the first episode that talks about material that you've been reading for class, as opposed to introductory materials. I'll give some background on the French Revolution and why it was such an issue for the writers at this time, and concentrate primarily on three of the readings that were assigned. Uh, that is, the competing views of the revolution as expressed by Edmund Burke, Mary Wollstonecraft, and Thomas Paine. The revolution in France began on July 14, 1789, uh, a date still celebrated as Bastille Day in France, when a mob in Paris attacked the Bastille, a political prison run by the monarchy in France, uh, as a place to put inconvenient uh, critics of the administration. Shortly after that victory, the, the National Constitutional Assembly, uh, that is, the, the voice of the revolution, issued the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, uh, the first article of which stated, Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Social distinctions can be founded only on the common utility. Uh, this, somewhat analogous to our own Declaration of Independence, established a very radical position for power and equality in France and became the rallying point for those who supported the revolution and also a great source of anxiety and fear for those who, who did not. For the writers whom we read for today and for whom we will be for whom we will be reading over the next week or so, the fall of the Bastille signaled new possibilities, um, the new voice of hope and equality and liberty, uh, which seem to open up new opportunities uh, previously unavailable throughout most of European history. If you were an educated person in England reading about the events going on in France, you might have had one of a series, one of several different responses. Um, your response might have been a great deal of, of fear and anxiety because what's bad for the monarchy in France might also turn out to be bad for the monarchy in England. Or you might have had a good deal of, of joy and celebration because what might be seen as good for the people of France might be, by extent, seen as good for the people of England, uh, if, assuming you wanted to export that revolution to England and topple some more monarchies as well. And we have both points of view expressed in the re readings for today. But the events in France did not occur in a vacuum. If you were one of those British spectators of the events in France, um, this would not be the only revolution in your mind. The most recent one would have been the American Revolution, uh, began in 1776, and there were people in England who supported the Americans' call for liberty and equality, for greater representation and greater say over their taxation. Uh, th this was seen by many in England, or at least many um, forward-thinking political radicals in England, uh, as a, a Another in a succession, another in a series of steps leading towards greater sharing of power and greater decentralizing of, of power from the monarchy and moving towards democracy. Even further back, uh, what might have come to mind was the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688, so nearly 100 years before the fall of the Bastille, which occurred when James II, a king of England who tended to be a proponent of the divine right of kings, a, a, a king who argued that the executive powers of the king should be practically 
um, unlimited, was deposed. Uh, King William of Orange and his wife, Queen Mary, the famous William and Mary that the college is named after in Virginia, were invited to come into England and the not as an invasion, but as a, as a new monarch. So the, the army did not oppose him at the borders. James II was deposed and went into exile, from which he fomented various uh, hints of revolution for the next hundred years or so, he and his descendants. And further back yet again would have been, in, in the collective memory, the English Civil War, when King Charles I, opposed by the landed barons and by the Puritans, but for his high-handedness and his tendency to, to claim all power for himself, was opposed in an actual conflict in England. Uh, the Puritans and uh, parliamentarians and Oliver Cromwell ended up the victors, and Charles I was executed in 1649. Uh, a key event referenced by a number of the writers for today and will continue to be for later on. Um, one literary side note to this historical event is that the poet John Milton, the author of Paradise Lost, among other works, uh, was one of the, the great pamphleteers calling for the execution of Charles I. And he also was uh, a foreign minister in, in Oliver Cromwell's administration. Uh, so he was seen by many of the radical writers that we look at over the next week or so as a great emblem of um, anti-monarchical, of um, pro-democratic or pro-republican sentiments and seen as a great prophet and voice of, of the people and an image of how the poet can make a difference in society. At least initially, there was some support in England, particularly in London, in, in certain political circles, for the events in France. Uh, the fall of the Bastille, again, seemed to point towards new opportunities, new possibilities, greater freedom. Events, however, pro uh, progressed in France on less predictable and less positive lines. In 1790, the royal family of King Louis XVI and his wife, Queen Marie Antoinette, were arrested um, and then eventually and imprisoned. Uh, and then eventually, in 1793, Louis XVI was, uh, was uh, executed by the guillotine, and later that year, uh, so was his queen, Marie Antoinette. Again, the, the killing of the king, perhaps understandable from a, uh, a, a political decision, if Louis was left alive, the, the, uh, the revolutionaries feared he would be a, a rallying point for anti-revolutionary, for counter-revolutionary forces, who would try to return him to the throne. And the assumption was if he was killed, that possibility was curtailed. Of course, there's also the possibility he would become a martyr uh, for the cause, which to some extent happened. Later that year, France declared war on England, and that put the political radicals in England in the position of either supporting liberty and being traitors to their country, or supporting their country and being traitors to their, uh, to their political ideals. England declared war on France in return. Uh, again in 1793, the revolutionary forces began to turn on themselves, uh, purging various factions, um, so that from May of 1793 to July of 1794, the so-called Reign of Terror occurred, in which thousands were executed, uh, were guillotined in the streets, and there was a great deal of, of chaos in, in France. Throughout the 1790s, France began to export its revolution, um, invading neighboring countries, even in 1798 invading Switzerland, uh, a 
traditionally neutral country. And again, each of these steps tended to make it more difficult for the, for the radicals in England to support revolution, uh, to maintain their, um, their allegiance to this particular cause. Um, finally, in 1799, Napoleon, a general in the French army, um, as the most successful of the generals, staged a coup, uh, took control of France, had himself crowned emperor, and um, maintained a, a number of decades of war throughout most of Europe uh, until finally he was defeated by um, English, Prussian, and Austrian forces at the Battle of Waterloo and in, imprisoned on, on the island of St. Helena. Uh, so from 1789 to 1815, roughly 25 years of conflict between England and France, a fear of revolution, fear of invasion, while the American Revolution had had definitely been you know, forefront in the in the political mindset and in the, in the news during the years it occurred, it was three thousand miles away, and it was over much more um, political and economic issues. Uh, nothing nearly as radical as what was going on in France with the uh, ending of the monarchy, with the ending of the church, with new calendar, new days of the week, new um, an entirely new social system. Also. Uh, while America and its revolution had been 3,000 miles away, France was only 12 miles away across the English Channel. And so there was continual fear in England of an invasion of France, that England, one of the few countries in Europe, by the, by the middle of the, the early uh, 1810s, the only country left uh, undefeated by Napoleon, um, feared that an invasion was imminent. And so the response of the British government was to curtail political freedoms. Many of the traditional freedoms, the rights that Englishmen had taken for granted, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, uh, the writ of habeas corpus, which um, required the government to charge you with a crime if they were going to hold you in prison, all of these were ended because uh, the government said um, the fear of, of foreign invasion, time of war, uh, required certain changes in the way things had been done. All of this may sound very familiar to us today, although if it does, it may be because of our tendency to project our current events onto the past or project our experiences onto the present and the future. I'd like to turn your attention now to some of the readings for today, uh, specifically the comments by Edmund Burke in Reflections on the Revolution in France, um, and then Mary Wollstonecraft's rebuttal of Burke, uh, along with Tom Paine's in The Rights of Man. Burke specifically supports the status quo of government and uh, society, particularly revering tradition, and tries to convince the audience in England that the events in France are, are bad and should not be emulated in, in, a, in an English society. Uh, a couple of themes he highlights in particular, one is that the current arrangement of government is natural, that it's based on the family, um, and that it tends to have a cluster of values which he thinks his audience uh, will accept. So you notice the way he uh, uses rhetorical strategies and particular buzzwords to, to create this appeal, to create this uh, consent on the part of the audience. For example, on page 49 in our book, he talks about the advantages of, of doing things the way we've always done them. He highlights the word inheritance uh, as a symbol for the passing down of uh, objects of value from one generation to the next. 
and he says towards the top of the page, we have an inheritable crown, an inheritable peerage, and a house of commons and a people inheriting privileges, franchises, and liberties from a long line of ancestors. This policy appears to me to be the result of profound reflection, or rather the happy effect of following nature, which is wisdom without reflection, and above it. A spirit of innovation is generally the result of a selfish temper and confined views. People will not look forward to posterity, who never look backward to their ancestors. Besides, the people of England well know that, this, that the idea of inheritance furnishes a sure principle of conservation and a sure principle of transmission, without at all excluding a principle of improvement. Now, notice here he, he's um, emphasizing the British Constitution, the English government, the system of inheritable peerages and aristocracy, uh, the privileges that the upper classes, the titled um, aristocracy, tended to pass down from one generation to the next as being analogous to a father giving an inheritance to a child. Uh, so he uses readily identifiable type of metaphor um, and highlights over and over again that this is natural, uh, this happens in the family, it also should happen in the government. And note he um, categorizes innovators as people who are dissatisfied, who have confined views, who are selfish, who want more than their fair share. A little later he says um, on that same page, Thus, by preserving the method of nature in the conduct of the state, in what we improve, we are never wholly new. In what we retain, we are never wholly obsolete. By adhering in this manner and on these principles to our forefathers, we are guided not by the superstitions of antiquarians, but by the spirit of philosophic analogy. And, and again, he's trying to refute the claims of those in France who would argue that a reverence for the past is mere superstition and, and should be done away with as quickly as possible. On page 50, he addresses one of the central issues and, in fact, one of the central appeals of the French Revolution for those in England, of the claims of equal rights for man, equal rights for all men. He writes in the section uh, identified by the editor as the real rights of men. Burke says, Far am I from denying in theory, full as far as my heart from withholding in practice, if I were of power to give or to withhold, the real rights of men. In denying their false claims of right, I do not mean to injure those which are real, and are such as their pretended rights would totally destroy. If civil society be made for the advantage of men, all the advantages for which it is made become his right. It is an institution of beneficence, and law itself is only beneficence acting by a rule. Men have a right to live by that rule. They have a right to do justice, as between their fellows, whether their fellows are in public function or in ordinary occupation. They have a right to the fruits of their industry and to the means of making their industry fruitful. They have a right to the acquisition of their parents, to the nourishment and improvement of their offspring, to instruction in life and to consolation in death. Whatever each man can separately do without trespassing upon others, he has a right to do for himself. And he has a right to a fair portion of all which society, with all its combinations of skill and force, can do in his favor. In this partnership, all men have equal rights, but not to equal things. He that has but five shillings in the partnership has as good a right to it as he that has five hundred pounds has to his larger proportion, but he has not a right to an equal dividend in the product of the joint stock, and as to the share of power, authority, and direction which each individual ought to have in the management of the state, that I must deny to be amongst the direct original rights of man in civil society. This was one of the key questions for, for the debate at that time. What rights do you have and where do you get them? Burke tends to emphasize the rights of property. You have the right to the property that you own, the rights to the goods that you uh, earn, 
the rights to in inherit the goods from your from your ancestors, from your parents. Um, he is not in favor of redistribution of wealth, of changing the status quo, of giving more privileges to the have-nots. And he tends to um, frame it in a way so that the, the reader, most likely a reader who owns property, based on uh, whom, the, not whom the book is pitched for and how much the book cost, um, that, the, uh, that the reader would tend to agree with him. Besides pushing this particular economical button, the, the button I guess you might refer to as of self-interest as far as economics is concerned, he also tends to um, appeal to the dramatic, uh, to the melodramatic even, in the account of the arrest of uh, King Louis XVI and, and Marie Antoinette. On page 51, uh, there is an extensive account of the, uh, the mob breaking into the palace and arresting them, leading them through a procession to imprisonment. And this, uh, this melodramatic account prompts one of the most famous uh, uh, or infamous sections of, the, uh, of his account. On page 52, which he contrasts the reaction of members of France to the arrest, to this besmirching of the honor of, of Marie Antoinette, um, with what um, the knights of the old, of old would have done had a lady been insulted in this way. And he writes, but the age of chivalry is gone, that of sophisters, economists, and calculators has succeeded, and the glory of Europe is extinguished forever. Never, never more shall we behold that generous loyalty to rank and sex, that proud submission, that dignified obedience, that subordination of the heart which kept alive, even in servitude itself, the spirit of an exalted freedom. The unbought grace of life, the cheap defense of nations, the nurse of manly sentiment and heroic enterprise is gone. It is gone, that sensibility of principle, that chastity of honor which felt a stain like a wound, which inspired courage whilst it mitigated ferocity, which ennobled whatever it touched, and under which voice, vice itself lost half its evil by losing all its grossness. Um, again, he's trying to rouse the indignation of his readers to the events that occurred to the aristocrats, to the royal family. And he generally sees um, this path of um, path that the French have taken as leading towards the destruction of all valuable in society. Uh, on page 53 he writes, On this scheme of things, a king is but a man, a queen is but a woman, a woman is but an animal, and an animal not of the highest order. All homage paid to the sex in general as such, and without distinct views, is to be regarded as romance and folly. Regicide and parricide and sacrilege are but fictions of superstition, corrupting jurisprudence by destroying its simplicity. The murder of a king, or a queen, or a bishop, or a father, are only common homicide. And if the people are by any chance, or in any way gainers by it, a sort of homicide much the most pardonable, and to which we ought not to make too severe a scrutiny. Now, again, a warning um, here to be careful that he's being ironic. He is being sarcastic. He is not claiming that it's okay to kill the king. Uh, he is instead making fun of, he's rebuking, rebuking through satire, those who would say there's no difference between killing a king and anybody else. Finally, turn your attention to a passage on page 55, where he addresses the idea of the social contract. Um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau had published his philosophical work entitled The Social Contract um, some decades before the French Revolution, in which he argued that societies government is based on a mutual consent that it's beneficial to the, the group to have some kind of governing. 
And, he argues, if it turns out not to be beneficial, society can do away with it. Um, Bert is horrified by this uh, rejection of tradition and writes, To avoid, therefore, the evils of inconstancy and versatility, ten thousand times worse than those of obstinacy and the blindest prejudice, we have consecrated the state that no man should approach to look into its defects or corruptions, but with due caution, that he should never dream of beginning its reformation by its subversion that he should approach to the faults of the state as to the wounds of a father with pious awe and trembling solicitude. By this wise prejudice, we are taught to look with horror on those children of their country who are prompt rashly to hack that aged parent in pieces and put him into the kettle of magicians in hopes that uh, by their poisonous weeds and wild incantations they may regenerate the paternal constitution and renovate their father's life. Society is not to be improved, he argues, by hacking it to pieces. Only by uh, a reverent awe and slow, gradual steps should any steps be, should any work be done to uh, to alter the state. And he says society is a contract, but one different from a, a mere business agreement that you can break whenever it's necessary or expedient to do so. And he argues that laws are valuable because they're laws, and, and particularly because they are old and we should um, approach them with what he calls a wise prejudice, a nice oxymoron, um, suggesting that you shouldn't think too much about it. You should let your heart tell you what's right. Um, now, Burke was tremendously influential in these views, uh, reached a wide audience. Uh, you can still perhaps see elements of his uh, view of society in conservative politics today. In fact, so influential was Burke that almost immediately after the publication of his Reflection on the Revolution in France, Mary Wollstonecraft in A Vindication of the Rights of Men and Thomas Paine in The Rights of Man both attempted to uh, contain and refute his views. I wanted to look first at Wollstonecraft's argument uh, and look particularly at a passage that begins on page 57 as an example of what points she hopes to make against Burke. She writes, the birthright of man, to give you, sir, a short definition of this disputed right, is such a degree of liberty, civil and religious, as is compatible with the liberty of every other individual with whom he is united in a social compact and the continued existence of that compact. Liberty, in this simple, unsophisticated sense, I acknowledge, is a fair idea that has never yet received a form in the various governments that have been established on our bounteous globe. The demon of property has ever been at hand to encroach on the sacred rights of men and to fence round with awful pomp laws that war with justice. If there is anything like argument or first principles in your wild declamation, behold the result, that we are to reverence the rust of antiquity and term the unnatural customs which ignorance and mistaken self-interest have consolidated the sage fruit of experience. Nay, that if we do discover some errors, our feelings should lead us to excuse with blind love our, or unprincipled filial affection the venerable vestiges of ancient days. These are gothic notions of beauty. The ivy is beautiful, but when it insidiously destroys the trunk from which it receives support, who would not grub it up? In this passage, two of her re recurring points are the danger of property and the tendency of inequities in the distribution of that property to maintain social evils and to require a revolution to, to uh, repair them. Second, her argument is that she sees history 
and the present entirely differently than Burke, whereas Burke tends to look back on a golden age which, from which we are tending to fall off, Wollstonecraft looks at the past and sees only, only uh, injustice, only oppressive nature, um, oppressive nature of government, which she sees uh, slowly but steadily moving away from. Um, now, probably the truth exists somewhere in between or, or along with both of these views, but both take an extreme view of history and both project that view onto the past in order to make their case stronger. Another continual uh, assault that she mounts on Burke is to attack his rhetoric, to attack the flowery nature of his language, the melodramatic nature of his examples. And she writes on page 61, In modern poetry, the understanding and memory often fabricate the pretended effusions of the heart, and romance destroys all simplicity, which, in works of taste, is but a synonymous word for truth. This romantic spirit has extended to our prose and scattered artificial flowers over the most barren heath, or a mixture of verse and prose producing the strangest incongruities. The turgid bombast of your periods fully proves these assertions, for when the heart speaks we are seldom shocked by hyperbole or dry raptures. I am led very often to doubt your sincerity, and to suppose that you have said many things merely for the sake of saying them well. Again, she argues that Burke is writing for effect. Uh, Burke is making up his, his argument merely to, uh, to, to impress the crowd, but he doesn't really believe it. Uh, she does point out that he, for example, supported the American Revolution and tends to see an inconsistency in his uh, now backing of tradition given his, few, his previous position. Thomas Paine, in The Rights of Man, continues the assault and argues on page 65 in a rejection of tradition and a rejection of the power of past laws to maintain present and future behavior, says, There never did, there never will, and there never can exist a parliament or any description of men or any generation of men in any country possessed of the right or the power of binding and controlling posterity to the end of time. Every age and generation must be as free to act for itself in all cases as the ages and generations which preceded it. The vanity and presumption of governing beyond the grave is the most ridiculous and insolent of all tyrannies. Man has no property in man, neither has any generation of property in the generations which are to follow. The Parliament, or the people of 1688, or of any other period, had no more right to dispose of the people of the present day, or to bind or control them in any shape whatsoever, than the Parliament or the people of the present day have to dispose of, bind, or control those who are to live a hundred or a thousand years hence. Every generation is and must be competent to all the purposes which its occasions require. It is the living and not the dead that are to be accommodated. In this argument, he, he, in this charge that Burke is in favor of governing beyond the grave, he attempts to raise the issue of uh, Rousseau's social contract to argue that the contract is always under negotiation and that the people uh, are always sovereign or always have the right and power to change their government if they find it un dysfunctional. Tom Paine also goes on specifically to attack Burke's argument or that the arrest of Marie Antoinette indicates that chivalry is gone. He writes sarcastically on page 68, When we see a man dramatically lamenting in a publication intended to be believed that the age of chivalry is gone, that the glory of Europe is extinguished forever, that the unbought grace of life, if anyone knows what it is, the cheap defense of nations, the nurse of manly sentiment and heroic enterprise is gone. 
And all of this because the Quixote age of chivalry nonsense is gone. What opinion can we form of his judgment? Of what regard can we pay to his facts? In the rhapsody of his imagination, he has discovered a world of windmills, and his sorrows are that there are no Quixotes to attack them. As you will recall, uh, Miguel Cervantes' novel Don Quixote featured a knight who had read too many tales of chivalry, mistook that for reality, and went off chasing windmills, thinking they were giants. And I'd like to draw your attention to one last quotation on page 70, where Paine ends his, his argument by saying, When we survey the wretched condition of man under the monarchical and hereditary systems of government, dragged from his home by one power or driven by another, and impoverished by taxes more than by enemies, it becomes evident that those systems are bad, and that a general revolution in the principle and construction of governments is necessary. Both Paine and Wollstonecraft take an extreme radical position, Paine arguing for a revolution in the general construction of all governments, Wollstonecraft calling for a revolution in the construction of all personal property. But in your, in your blogs, and your discussions, one good approach to, to start off would be to compare and contrast the views of, of Burke and Paine and Wollstonecraft, specifically to say to what extent you, um, you're persuaded by them. Uh, what good points do they make? Uh, where do you find yourself standing in between these three positions? Um, another approach might be to look at their, uh, their use of, the, of certain key words like nature or family or um, liberty or rights or uh, how they perceive justice. You know, all of these would be good starting points. Next time, in the, in the next podcast, we'll be talking about William Blake. Until then... Good night.